welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Dr. Alison Darcy. She is a trained clinical research psychologist and president and founder of Wobot Health. And if you don't know Wobot Health, it's a company that develops scalable, meaningfully engaging AI-powered therapeutic solutions for mental health. And they have raised over $120 million in total and making incredible impact to people globally. Alison and I had an amazing chat about her background, about Wobot, about her ambition, about team culture, about being a reluctant CEO. Plenty in this episode, no matter where you are in health tech. So hope you enjoy it. So Dr. Alison Darcy, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm okay. I'm, I'm delighted uh, for you to be joining me today, Alison, because uh, as we just spoke about very briefly off air, I've been a user of Wobot for uh, some months, some years, in fact. Um, and as I said, it's helped me through some uh, relatively tough spots and testament to the app. I use it far less now, actually, because of everything it's taught me. So um yeah, I'm I'm absolutely uh, delighted for you to join because uh, I've also done a lot of reading around you, and I know I know the story behind Wobot's interesting. I know everything that the company's doing is interesting. You are one of the most well known of the health tech companies. It's fair to say, notorious. Some might be, some might oh, say, well, <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Your <laughs> reputation precedes you. But yes, Alison, it's a pleasure. So uh, my, my first proper question for you is for you to tell your story. And, and the reason that we start here is the motivation to start a health tech company, I think, has to be quite great. That It's difficult, not only starting, but running and scaling a health tech company, all the barriers, everything involved. And so it's often a combination of, of circumstance, luck, hard work that leads to the sort of success that Wobot's had. And so... I would love for you to tell me a little bit about the story behind Wobot, your family, your education, everything that sort of shaped the idea for Wobot. Oh, I, that's, gosh. Um, yes, I, I do. I really consider myself the kind of reluctant, you know, founder. I was a reluctant kind of CEO at the start. Um, I, uh, I sort of, I mean, people tell you it's going to be hard, but you don't really... <laughs> You don't listen and you obviously just do not understand how hard it's going to be such that even when it's going well, it's going to be really hard. You know, it's a really difficult thing. But yeah, very, very, very lucky, I think. I think that's um, that's been the story, my story. Um, you know, there's no doubt my my sort of background education has been one of like privilege. You know, in, in Ireland, you just we're very lucky we had free third level education and a family, my family, my, my dad in particular valued it very highly. Um, and that mixed with a, you know, just a sort of immaturity and not knowing what I wanted to do meant that I stayed in in college for a really long time and uh, did a PhD in, in sort of um, psychology and clinical research. And um, but in between that, prior to that, I had spent uh, in my early 20s, I learned to code and I, I, I was in a, I worked in an investment bank in London, actually. And um, it's really horrible coder, <laughs> uh, but um, it was it was at the time it was really it was the boot it was the late nineties so it was the boom of like internet and you know it, actually the internet was very controversial and it was like you know um, 
people were talking about how it was going to transform everything. And then there were still articles being, I actually saw a headline recently from something like 1996 from a British newspaper that said, oh, it's official, the internet's a fad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think, um, and so our our bank was taken over by a larger bank and I had to come to work with nothing to work on and because all of our projects were scrapped and things. And I was meeting with a friend at the time who um, had had co-founded a a support organisation that was funded publicly in Ireland to to sort of a grassroots organization that aimed to support people with eating disorders and their families. And they had a network of support groups, but the support groups were really hard to maintain. They're quite expensive and, and very few people would show up in person, you know, in a rural part of Ireland for like, you know, stigma, right? They, they didn't want to show up to the community hall at like 7.30 PM because everybody would know that they had an eating disorder, you know? And, and so we were talking about this and at the time, we sort of started toying around with this idea, well, why could you, could you not make an online uh, support group? What would that look like if you moved it to the internet? And so I sort of worked on that and um, started to become really fascinated with ha- like how you might translate some of the things that are beneficial uh, about being in a room with other people and, you know, what are the dynamics that are happening in a support group that are actually supportive, that are actually, you know, health supporting and could you replicate it in a digital sense? And then, you know, could you also fix some of the problems that you have um, with the in-person setting? And of course, with eating disorders, the presence of the body in the room is is problematic for some people. And so this became a really interesting opportunity if you could do it online where you don't, you know, you're not physically showing yourself if you want. Um, and so I just really fell in love with that process. And that's why I, I sort of went back to university into college into research um, to translate, you know, some of the fabulous things that we do in person, but fundamentally aren't scalable. Um, And could you translate it to a digital format so that, you know, you could distribute things more broadly. Um, So I did a PhD, um, and which was treatment development in an inpatient setting based on CBT. And from that, I just kind of learned that actually it's really hard to do CBT in an inpatient setting because you're not living, you know, you're, you're not learning those skills in your day-to-day life. You're learning them in this environment that is, by definition, you know, not the one in which you've initially struggled. And so the sort of generalizability of those skills is, is a little bit limited. And we found that when people were discharged and go and went home, the, the, they just lacked support. And then, you know, they would regress and relapse. And I just found that really frightening. So for my postdoc, I was lucky enough to go to Stanford um, and the child and adolescent psychiatry department at the School of Medicine there. And I had a wonderful mentor who's just an absolutely brilliant person. But, the, you know, the uh, lab was fundamentally um, one in which they specialized in family based treatment for for people with anorexia. And we were we were actually doing really interesting things around neuroscience as well, looking at, you know, people with eating disorders and the kinds of neurocognitive sort of inefficiencies they might have. And we were wondering, was this, did this constitute a biomarker and could you develop treatments around it that like helped people basically enhance their sort of neuroplasticity and their cognitive flexibility? And would that actually change the way that they were able to engage in treatment? And it was just such fascinating work and it was really brilliant. And I learned there to be really, really great scientists. Well, I learned about great science, (laughs) I will say. But um, I was always also trying to introduce a little bit of tech into everything that we did, you know, (laughs) at the time. I mean, in 2008, when I went over there, I mean, 
people in psychiatry just thought I was a, you know, just a maniac. Like, what do you, like, technology was just, what? Like, <laughs> and, and in fairness, though, this is a very, very forward looking lab and in general, and the department in general has been known for some of the really, really early digital um, tech with, with, with people like Bar Taylor and so on. And yeah, I mean, I think more and more there was, we grew more opportunities and I made a smartphone app that helped people track their intake while they were in treatment for eating disorders and things like that. And and then um, I was using massive open online course frameworks, which were had just been, you know, had just kind of come into the world in 2011 in a really big way with Coursera, also founded, uh, you know, a Stanford founded company. Um, and I thought this is amazing why we could scale this rare expertise that we have among the very few clinicians that have been highly trained in family-based treatment for anorexia. Maybe we could train more clinicians using this kind of a format um, and you'd be developing a community at the same time because it was all group and community-based. And then, and it was actually, it did work really well and then it worked so well, I thought, well, why don't we actually do the treatment itself, the family-based treatment using the same platform? Let's make these training videos, but for parents, and let's bring the parents together because the, the awful cruelty of parents of children with anorexia is that it's so rare in the population. They, they virtually don't know any other parent that's going through this. And and yet when you meet these children, they they are all like they come across, they all have the exact same symptoms and they all sort of say the exact same things because they've been sort of taken over by this illness and there's a starvation state that is taking over um, and parents can't really see that. So there was a lot of value in bringing the parents together as well. And long story short, I mean, that was quite, quite contraindicated at the time because something like anorexia is so medically compromising um, that people said, you know, we shouldn't do it on the internet. But then, you know, we found that our we were able to help parents re-nourish their children because it's fundamentally an empowerment model. Um, and contrary to the kind of popular belief around, well, if you're not in the room, it'll be so, you know, it'll be so cold and clinical and how could you develop that rapport? And it's supposed to be family-based treatment. In fact, I found that I was on their laptop in the kitchen table, you know, it sort of brought into the architecture of the family life. And it was really intimate. And, you know, of course, now having come through the pandemic, we all we all that's we know this. uh, We've all experienced it. Um, But back then it was really different. So when I left um, Stanford, they continued that work. And I think it's been it's been developed um, over the years as well. And I, I left Stanford to, to start something because, first of all, my I'd been in eating disorders labs my whole research career. But I had also been working with uh, David Burns, one of the the developers, I suppose, of, of CBT. Really, he wrote a book in, in 1980 called Feeling Good, which was the first sort of self-help book, if you like, based on CBT. And he made this like very, what was a somewhat technical therapeutic approach. And he made it so, you know, user-friendly, basically. It was, um, and David taught, I went to his, he had these great professional training groups and I went along with uh, many others and got to know him over the years and, and just learned really wonderful CBT that Wobot is really based on a lot of those principles um, that he taught me. But I felt there was like, this great, you know, this great model that we have in the clinic that's actually fundamentally a a, a person-driven approach. Like, you know, all of our studies show that the more people practice the skills that you're teaching them in the clinic, the better their outcomes will be. 
you know, surprise, surprise, as they're in their living their real life, you know, confronted with the things that are the things that kind of, you know, start your sort of, um, you know, start the negative automatic thoughts happening. They are the moments where you need to challenge those thoughts. And I just thought there's just no sort of tool that allows us to do that, like a real utilitarian tool that's so accessible that you can reach out in a moment of, you know, emotional distress or high stress or high anxiety. And because the interesting thing is that those are the moments where it's actually hardest to reach out. And yet those are the moments that we think are most potent if you can actually invite somebody to engage with one of these great skills. So that's the sort of academic side. Yeah, I think I was on another podcast and I was reflecting about how my dad, you know, come from a bigger family pre-1984 Irish Catholic family. So <laughs> there's like... My nan, my nan's Irish Catholic, so fully aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all have big families, particularly, yeah, for, for any of us who were born before contraception was available over the counter. <laughs> we all come from really big <laughs> families. But yeah, I was the youngest of six and my father is amazing. Um, he is, he stopped, he sort of went into rehab, I guess, and for alcoholism and was treated more than 50 years ago and has has been he just went in and got treated and has never relapsed and for him you know he's always been very open about it I did ask his permission to talk about it on a on podcast and things but he's always been very interested in the sort of psychological change process but because AA was so part of that journey he's also um he was also there for a lot of other people who were you know, at that crisis point and at that point where they're trying to figure out, do they, can they become sober? Can they address this? Are they really an alcoholic and things? And so, yeah, my, my family home was um, just always a place where some people would come and sort of start that journey. And my parents were always, um, yeah, just very, I think, kind and I think my dad was always very grateful for having recovered himself, you know, because it's really difficult. And there's a lot of obviously examples of people who weren't so fortunate. Um, and so he sort of paid it forward. Um, but I love I think there was something very meaningful in that a bit that being there for someone in their moment of need, which is a fundamentally different architecture than traditional treatment, because just you have to make an appointment or you have to go on a wait list and you have a certain time of day and, you know, that's your appointment time. And it, it's just that the engagement arc is really different. And I thought, well, there's this huge gap, I think, in those moments where you're actually really distressed and it might be 2 a.m. Like, what are you what are you going to do then? And so I just thought, like, yeah, how can we make it as easy as possible for people to reach out in that moment? And and so I think that when when I started Wobot, the the problem I was trying to solve was like engagement but engagement from this broad sense of like how do you engage somebody when they really all they want to do is sort of retreat and close the door that's when I talk to people about well you know what what do you really do when you're upset that's what they would almost always say is like that's the last time I will pick up the phone and and talk to a friend even though you know the conventional wisdom is when you're upset talk to someone but that's just not emotionally very possible for lots of people and what I heard time and time again was, yeah, I retreat, go into my room, close the door, retreat into my phone. Um, and and so we started making just like wild and wildly different engagement kind of prototypes, um, including, you know, video like games at the start. <laughs> very, yeah, very 
funny CBT themed ga- games. Um, yeah, the my our flagship was Zombies Got Issues, which was uh, a three D wow. game where <laughs> some <laughs> zombies were coming at you with distorted thoughts, <laughs> and you <laughs> you had to uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you had to name what the distortion was to to help them Amazing. come back to life. Yeah, they were even like zombified tech workers, and they were coming at you from down Market Street in San Francisco. <laughs> that was the yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, but you know, yeah, like actually, um, people don't really want zombies to survive, and you know, things like everybody hates me. It turns out it's not really a distortion when you're a zombie. It's just like just a reality. So. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, we found our way to Wobot. We made a prototype of a conversational agent and just sort of observing how some of our prototype testers, which were who were students at Stanford, just looking at them um, engaging with Wobot. And I could see immediately, oh, there's something really different here. But it was game-like. It was still kind of in the sense that there's a suspended disbelief that people very happily enter into and and that's a real magic because you're also asking people to do that when they're in a therapeutic process as well like let's sort of suspend disbelief for a minute let's just go there let's just you know see what it would be like if you didn't have to you know think like that if you did something differently what it would be what would that be like and so this it's it's really similar interesting space um but yeah I'll stop there (laughs) <laughs> it's an incredible story um, and there's so much in your story that I want to talk to you about. One of the things that fascinates me about, and it's an amazing term that you used, the the reluctant CEO or the reluctant founder that I've often heard it referred to as, because as scientists, as medics, we're evidence-based and we run defense more than we run offense, right? We want to know that something is safe, something is possible, something is doable, something is guaranteed. Otherwise, you abstain because that's how we're taught. And in our exams as medics, you get negatively marked. If you don't know the right answer, you don't guess, let alone you don't start a business if you're just guessing if if it's going to work. We need to know that something's going to absolutely work. And so the finding yourself solving a problem and you go down the road far enough to eventually need to start a company to solve it and then all of a sudden you're an entrepreneur. It's a story that I hear a lot this this you know the reluctant founder the reluctant CEO. But as I say one of the things that fascinates me is uh, how people amass the skills and the confidence needed to eventually take that jump whenever it is. And you can make that jump smaller by equipping yourself, but ultimately at some point you have to do that. Now, one of the things in your background that I think is incredibly enabling, and it's almost too obvious to even say again, really, but learning to code, frankly, like in the way that you talk, in the framework that you have, you and I talk about this a lot with medics that know how to code, they do ward rounds and all of a sudden they know how to solve the problem, not just talk about it. And I think knowing how to code, even not to know exactly how to build everything, but you know what's possible, it gives you a framework to, as you say, you you, you mentioned briefly, oh, I've quickly made an app to do blah, blah, blah. You mentioned that later, you know, but this learning to code is giving you this framework to actually understand what could be done. That's led you down the road of digitizing potentially. And again, you're thinking about almost in the coding language of, I need to break this down into its steps. How do I code for each bit? How can I now fix each problem that we have in person that I could do better digitally? It's really interesting that. And 
I think I don't know you oh, you, you, you tell you, yeah. you tell me how important was that to you in 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 becoming what you are now and what robot is now that's very interesting perspective because I yeah look I think I might be overselling my skills when I say I can learn how to code like I <laughs> my my partner's like you shouldn't you shouldn't tell people that. Just tell but them you you're a hacker. Possible, that's really what you, you know were. It's possible because you know the language. <laughs> but that's right. No, I think that's true. And and I think the the what we were doing in in the investment bank was building um, decision support tools yep. for <laughs> sales mean, traders. Come on, that's, yeah. Right. So I mean, uh, yeah. And 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 it's interesting now. I think I was just reflecting on this the other day. That what was absent from that was like sitting down and talking to like observing the sales traders and what they did and talking to them about, you know, what. And it seems like so preposterous now because that is just the standard way that you go about solving an issue and building something is that you talk to the user. Similarly, in, I think in clinical, in the clinical world, and I think my background actually as a sort of clinical scientist, but not a clinician, was more important than than the understanding how to code. But I think you're right. I think I approached it in the same way because often, especially at Stanford, my nine years there, I was lucky enough to be a, a research therapist on lots of trials. So if I saw patients, it was in the context of a, a treatment study. And then you're so highly trained in that particular therapeutic approach, often supervised by the person who invented it, which is incredible you know, it's an, it's an incredible opportunity. But because I was sort of, if you like, faking it as a clinician, I would think about how to do these therapies in this algorithmic way. And I think that lent itself really well to then digitizing something that is, you know, sort of fundamentally very human and process orientated. And I think you, there is a lot of clinical care that is sort of broken down algorithmically. I do think like a lot of clinicians think in terms of decision trees, right? And especially around diagnosis and things. I mean, James, you, you actually know this box a lot better than I would. But it, me- it meant that I was always approaching um, therapeutic approaches in this kind of way around the collection of components. And I'd say a lot of clinicians now will be really rolling their eyes and balking at this because, but that is a different training and it's a different approach that um yeah just lends itself so well to what we do versus i think clinicians their the way their minds work is really different and they have you know every detail is in their mind and and they are holding all of those details and all of those edge cases and edge possibilities in their mind in one in one go whereas i think um my background, my training is is a little bit different. It's a little bit more around simplification, minimization of bias, you know, that kind of a classic science mindset. Um, but yeah, I think that was more important. At the same time, I did. Yeah, so my my partner, my husband now, he like he's in tech as well. And we lived in San Francisco and all our friends were, many of our friends were in tech and they'd come over for dinner and they get around the table and I would not understand a word they were saying. I was like, this is, what is this world? What is this? What are they saying? <laughs> and there was once we were um, driving back down from the mountains from a snowboarding weekend. And my friend was playing this podcast. It's called Startup by Alex Bloomberg, who is this, uh, yeah, the producer and, and him talking about creating a startup. And I was blown away. I thought, oh my goodness, here's this technical person who also hasn't a clue about the startup world and just 
hearing him fumble his way through it in this honest way, I was so inspired. And I thought, oh, that's me. And wow, so people do this, like people really do this. So I raced home, I listened to every episode and I started to get really interested. I was like, maybe I just need some training. And I knew an amazing entrepreneur who I had been the research partner for her, Jenna Tregarth, and she founded a company called Recovery Record. And I asked Jenna, I was like, Jenna, how did you learn to be this amazing you know, entrepreneur. And she said she had done the Stanford Ignite program at the Graduate School of Business as well. That's how I met her. She had reached out to me there. So I just applied for, I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And my department were so enthusiastic. Like they were actually really supportive. They financially helped me to, to, to attend. And I did that program and it's like an intensive, they describe it as an intensive MBA where they teach you, you know, I mean, it it is amazing. It's residential. You live down there and it's also experiential. So you kind of come with an idea, you pitch the class on this idea and then you see if anybody wants to join your team. And then as you're sort of learning about all these different um, areas of, of starting a business, you know, you're also developing this idea and it culminates in pitches to investors at the end and things. And so that was such a great experience. And this was the first time I had pitched anything and I pitched, you know, making CBT into games. Um, but of course, I was too in love with that, a solution at that point, which I, you know, sort of cor- course corrected moving forward. But um, so I that gave me enough training to sort of know then who did I need to like it, it allowed you to know what you didn't know. And and it was a wonderful experience and a wonderful sort of networking experience, too, because everybody was brilliant. They are mostly Stanford graduate students. I was probably the one of the oldest in the class. Um But that also really, I don't think I would have been able to do it without that. And then there was wonderful mentorship. So in Mm. fairness, Andrew Ng, who, I mean, he was, he was basically there, like he was wonderful. I don't think I would have started the company had it not been for him. And he was our earliest supporter. Um, So, and he continues to be, you know, just a wonderful mentor. So they were all very key things along the Mm. journey that were very, very helpful. Again, but luck has a lot to do with it, as you said, James. Yeah, plenty of people say it. I think you do create your own, though, don't you? I mean, you you can be in the right place at the right time, and uh, you know, there's a lot about labelling yourself as lucky as the way that you then uh, perceive the situation and and throw that lens over everything. I think you can perceive yourself as lucky versus not. It also strikes me, Alison, that you're very much a people person, aren't you? You've talked about you mentioned mentorship twice as something that's really mattered to you, and that's a very one-to-one interaction. You're obviously a trained clinical research psychologist. Again, a very one-to-one interaction between the psychologist and the patient traditionally, but that leads me on to my next point, really, that I want to talk to you about before we go on to Wobot properly, which is that you mentioned that technology was relatively jarring for people in your business uh, prior to, obviously, you starting Wobot and the digitization of something like healthcare before that's even been started, you know, 10, 15 years ago, not even maybe, uh, I imagine was quite jarring. The idea that technology could come along and play a role in this interaction between a clinician and a patient that is extremely human, extremely nuanced, extremely one-to-one. And we know that we've got a workforce crisis. We know that the one-to-one method of healthcare, particularly mental healthcare, is not scalable. Uh, well, that's not true. It's not realistic to consider it in the same way as any as any short-term solution right now. Let's be very clear about that. It takes years to train a clinician from 
well, go psychology from medical school upwards, go clinical psychology from course onwards. You know, th- 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 these are years long processes and these problems need to be solved way before we encounter them. So we're encountering a problem now with workforce that's been cooking for a decade, at, at least arguably. And so, yeah, you introducing technology now as a potential solution, you exploring tech options for digitizing CBT, that can't have been easy. And rather than dwelling on that necessarily, that's that's probably an obvious one that, yeah, okay, that was tough. My question really is, do you see technology now as scaling things like CBT for depression, anxiety, chronic pain? Like there's plenty, there's plenty of ways that CBT is being digitized now into apps and delivered for healthcare. Is this the future? Is it scalable? Is it realistically going to help us solve a problem that we very much have right now with workforce? It has to. Uh, Digital has to be part of the solution. There is no doubt. And I tell you, it's not just because, you know, we have, you know, a great shortage and, and all the supply issue and which, by the way, like was not solved with telemedicine. That did not grow any new humans by, you, you know, just facility. And it actually ended up, and certainly in the US, it ended up giving more access to people who already had access rather than increasing right. access for people who were traditionally disenfranchised. However, no, the reason why I think it has to is because we actually have to not just treat people who are very ill with, with human therapists. That still will always have to happen. And we should try and facilitate that that, such that it happens earlier. But if we're really going to reduce the burden of disease in the population, we have to intervene much earlier with people and and allow them to be like, empower them with better self-driven tools. And you don't, we have to sort of change the conversation such that people can see that for those people who can use self-driven tools, they should because it's ultimately so empowering to be able to come through these issues on your own learning great skills when you can i just don't believe that everybody needs to see a human and i think that there can be so much actual therapeutic value in being able to resolve things on your own with with good tools right um that's like maybe it's a controversial idea for some but i think it's based on and I don't think it's all therapy that needs that should be in a self-driven digital mm-hmm. format. But I think CBT in particular is a therapeutic approach that fundamentally is best delivered as a self-help intervention. But that mostly sometimes gets delivered by humans. But actually, I think in guided self-help version of CBT actually fits with the therapeutic model better than does going to see a therapist in an appointment once a week, that kind of a setting. And so that's why I think, and this is like the best. So I think actually digital presents this incredibly important public health opportunity if we can actually embrace it. My fear is that the skepticism and the red herring around, oh, robots replacing therapists or or any tools like it is, is trying to replace the therapist. It, that's a red herring. It's a non-issue. There, you can't replace something. This is what a, a professor from Duke said the other day in, the, in, in um, the, the New York Times. You can't replace something that doesn't exist. That's not the issue. The issue is how can we get like liberate some of these amazing tools out of the exclusive domain of the clinic? And get them into the hands of people if they can use them. Now, not everybody will be able to be successful and that's okay. And those people really should see humans. 
And um, because, you know, humans can deal with complexity and a depth of problems that digital never will be able to. But so many people can make use of very good structured tools, particularly if, you know, if it suits itself if it lends itself well to sort of a CBT resolution, if it's, if it's around, if it's a problem that can be assuaged with, you know, um, better sort of thinking hygiene over and over again, and the commitment to that and the sort of neuroplasticity that comes with rewriting the script over and over. And, um, I mean, we know that helps people feel better. That is the most evidence-based approach that we currently have. Let me just stop that rant. And did I answer your question? <laughs> you absolutely did. No, you absolutely did. The, the answer is we. It has to. And I think the 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 interesting thing there that I'm that I'm taking from that is actually that it's important to consider who for whenever you're asking the question about digital. Absolutely. Because I think that's, that's what right. you've really identified there, right? Yeah. So I think it's definitely a case of thinking, well, we are not replacing what is incredibly necessary care from human to human. And you're right. There is no preventative human to human right now. There aren't enough humans delivering that care. So it's impossible to prevent something. What you're doing is you're occupying a vacuum, a vacuum of... Well, what we're, say, what we're suggesting with digital, what we're suggesting with digital is that it can occupy a vacuum, one that is not filled by anything currently. And that is a place where we can, well, we can put preventative digital measures that people can access on their own without burdening a healthcare system, which then has the benefit of self-help or at least help that stops them eventually accessing that service. Therefore, everybody wins. That is essentially what you're saying in that answer, and that's essentially what I'm taking away from it. And so leads me nicely onto Wobot then and what you are clearly doing there for mental health. And as I say, I'm aware because I've used the product plenty. I'm interested. What So the definition of health tech company is very broad, and I think it often gets used. It's a relatively new term. It often gets used for, I suppose, more of the B2B companies that are selling into healthcare services, providers, organizations, that type of thing. But obviously, Wobot is a health tech company. It's, it's health. It's obviously improving human health. It's got plenty of technology involved in it. What is the business model for Wobot? And... Where is that now compared to perhaps where it was? And what was what was the thinking behind how you'd actually sell this? And what's the ambition for Wobot with that in mind? Because clearly there is plenty of scope for where you could sell to, how it could be delivered to the masses. Is it pure B2C? Is there a B2B element? Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, it is. It's not. We don't charge individual consumers so so there's a version of wobot that is kind of a i would say the sort of simplified engagement that you that is free on the app store and that's wobot that but wobot doesn't have a lot of state there he doesn't really you know he doesn't know james that you were talking to him for years you know whereas i i think <laughs> but but even and he should do because i'll have a word um but it forms the basis of um, then we've sort of we've built a kind of a we've built a, a, a platform that can then um, sort of create discrete products and solutions for specific intended uses that we then distribute through partners um, in particular settings, depending on the level 
like depending on the intended use actually. And some of those will be in a regulated environment. And we really actually believe in regulation because we we think that in the absence of it, what's happening is people are like, oh, this digital stuff, it's just Absolutely. nonsense. And right. And I, th- I think the problem there is that we're undermining this like public health opportunity that we have through that perception. And um, so we're we're kind of working with we want to work with regulators to understand where where is the what what's the correct role for this technology and these discrete products. So for example, we have we built built a solution for postpartum depression that the FDA gave us breakthrough designation for in May 2020. Um, we're building out a solution for for adolescents as well um, that we intend to also bring through regulatory. And then there are other things that again are fundamentally not targeting um, you know, clinical populations that would be for everybody that would be more like this is CBT for everybody. This is good life skills. So, you know, I think when you learn CBT, everybody has the same reaction. We should be teaching this stuff in schools. Like, why are we not just, this is just good life skills though. So we want to create that too. Um, and that's the freely available app that, that we have in the app store. I, I should say that what's fundamentally different, like what, we didn't invent, obviously, digital CBT. It, it's actually been around for 20 years. Like People have been making self-driven versions of CBT for a long time. And there's a very healthy literature that shows that digital versions of them could do as well as therapists deliver CBT. But what was different about Wobot, I think, is that we we digitized the process of an interaction rather than just teaching people. I think there's a lot of teaching in CBT as well. And so a lot of the digital versions that came before us were based on, were sort of psychoeducational tools. Um, we, we did bring it one step further and said, no, no, but we want to be able to encourage people to challenge their thinking in that moment, in that moment where their thinking is very distorted because of an intense emotion. And because if you can bring somebody through that process, that is the stuff of CBT. That's the, the that's it in its most distilled format. But I think of when sort of people ask me, yeah, who's who's Wobot for? And, you know, I can talk about the the solutions that we're spinning up uh, from the place of this great platform we're building. But I, I fundamentally still believe this is just like very good CBT. And the difficulty in answering that question is, is because CBT is so broadly applicable across populations and across problems. And, and again, just good life skills as well, right? Just good thinking hygiene. So it, and it depends on, you know, we're, we're fund, we're in the U S market. And of course there, mm. the payers, are the people that are distributing most of healthcare. A lot of a lot of digital behavioral health companies are distributing through self-insured employers. But we've always believed, no, like this is about, you know, certainly for our regulated products, we want to be able to say, no, that we want to shift symptoms. This is for management of symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so that's why we've gone down a regulatory pathway and we want to be reimbursed as as a as a clinical tool. Um, not yeah, an educational one, not a, not a wellness, but a digital therapeutic. Yeah. yeah. And that's so, so interesting that the wellness space, because as you say, a bit, bit wild west, isn't it? Anyone can spin up an app and as long as you're not using the words diagnosis, treatment and a few others, you could probably broadly get away with whatever educational stuff or advice that you're giving. And, you know, it's interesting the language you're using about, in, you know, intended use. And, you know, it's clear that you guys are very deliberate in the way that you're using that language and what you guys want to do. 
Well, you you have to be, and I and I think we were talking earlier about you know the sort of reluctant founder of peace, and I think right before I left Stanford, like I actually uh, published a paper in JAMA with with the head of our department and another coworker where we were saying, look, machine learning and things like AI are being used in clinical care. And, and also where there is a vacuum, like you talked about, there's a, a vacuum that get, then gets filled. And if there's a vacuum where there should be some self-driven tools, people will, that vacuum gets filled. It gets filled by yeah. a bunch of stuff. And we were we wrote that paper as a sort of call to arms saying, hey, clinicians, you need to be at the table. We can't just pretend that this is happening in the app world. And, you know, what we do in the clinic is so well protected and, and you know, the ivory tower, it'll all be fine. Actually, we need to be partnering with technologists. And, and so part of the decision to create an app or to create a startup was like, well, I guess... I guess it'll be me then. I guess I guess I better do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And th- th- you're right with with that vacuum there to be filled with something commercial. Something commercial is going to come in, and there's a responsibility, isn't there? When I think you're someone like yourself with the background that you have, the skills that you have, the knowledge that you have, the education, the everything else, you can almost feel this weight of responsibility of of well, I'm seeing what else is occupying this space, and actually something does need to be better and. And you're right, I think the regulated route has to be the way, there has to be trailblazers that, that pave that for the rest of the wellness space and actually drive up minimum standards. That's that's really what we're talking about here, I think, because it's the minimum standards thing for me. We could talk about quality, we could talk about that later maybe and like maximising quality, but actually I think it's just driving up minimum standards and having that entry criteria in the same way that CE marking, FDA, whatever, however you want to talk about regulation and, and even DTAC in the UK, the new NHS thing, like... It, there are these minimum standards requirements that you do what you say you're going to do and, and you're doing that for you know the reasons stated intended use etc cetera, etc cetera. so it is incredibly important and we find that our our users our users are like we actually did a i think a large scale survey and found that users are like very discerning and 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 are actually yeah. um much more likely to and actually, it wasn't a survey of our users. I think it was, a, it was a survey of the population more broadly. And we found that people are just much more likely to adopt a solution if they think that there are, is actual research that backs it up. If there's a yeah. team that kind of is thoughtful and has some credibility behind it. And I think that was really encouraging. Because yeah. I think that old school notion of like, oh, people don't care about the study if it's a good experience. I'm like, mm, I don't know mm. if that's true. A word, a word about your team. Obviously, you've raised over $123 million, $90 million last year, another investment from Bayer's investment arm this year. You're onboarding or seemingly hiring lots of chiefs of things according to your website. There's, <laughs> yes. uh, there's, there's growth. There's growth going on. There's, there's, obviously, there's clearly lots going on. But I've also read in, in one of your blogs or, or a Medium blog that was written by someone from Wobot that the, the T, it's an, it's an incredible culture that you have at Wobot. And I'd expect nothing less, actually, having spoken to you and reading what I've read online. You know, I've read about things like valuing humor, celebrating success. And these can often just be said as things that are there, right? Like everybody ticks the box and says these things. But there's a, there's a sense yeah. that this is what actually goes on, right? <laughs> With someone that runs a company in CBT <laughs> mental health. Like, I, I would just love to know in the, in the couple of minutes we have left about, about how you think about team and how you think about culture and, and, and yeah, the challenges of scale and keeping that culture, perhaps. I think that's relevant to a few of our listeners. 
That's that's brilliant, James. I well, I have to say, it's I, thankfully um, Michael Evers joined us as CEO in twenty, like it was March twenty twenty. It was remember he was supposed to start in April, but the world was imploding. That's and time. I remember having this conversation, and he's like, "Shall I start now?" I was like, "Yes, please. Can you start now immediately?" <laughs> so. So I have to say, I mean, Michael and Michael has really grown, brought Wobot to the next level and he's a great partner to me. So I'm president now and he's CEO and we're, we're very, uh, we just work really well together. And the, I think we offset each other really well. Those skill sets, very complimentary. I brought in to the team, a lot of people that I had known for a really long time who are old friends of mine, which is, it can be a mixed bag. I, I remember reading um, Ben Horowitz, and uh, I think it's the hard thing about hard things. And he said, if you can imagine yourself giving negative feedback to one of your friends, then go ahead, bring, make the hiring decision. But if you can't imagine that, do not do that. But I, you know, people like Athena Robinson, she's just a giant in our department. She was in the adult side in our department, just a brilliant, brilliant clinician. And I think a brilliant leader, right? Because I think she was, you know, one of the country's leading academics, like up and coming. And to say, hey, can you leave your Stanford job and join this like startup that barely exists? And, you know, I think those people are leaders when they make that jump. But Michael also has known a lot of the people that work with us now from from his previous roles. But and in particular, there's a lot of people who worked at patients like me prior to being at Wobot. And so there's a lot of there's a great dynamic among people who've worked together for a long time, but also very mission driven people. Right. So I think you have to hire for values, number one, because everything else, technical skill can be trained. That's just technical skill. But if you if you don't have this, the same sort of values mindset, you can't change that in somebody. And that's when it goes really wrong. The challenges of scaling, it's really interesting because, yeah, there's I think there's a lot of people who haven't been in the company longer than a few months because we've grown so quickly in the in the last few months. And we I think we do obsess about it, this question a lot. We have, I mean, Donna Marie, one of my, again, an old friend of mine, she's head of people, just obsessed with just, just very, very, very thoughtful people. And I do think it's just, it's something that um, people feel. And I think people feel it even when you're a distributed team, even when the most, the majority of your engagements are through Zoom. We do, I mean, we're not perfect and it's not right. It's not a, a, no company has a kind of a culture in which everybody will thrive um, but I think, you know, I think we're very, very fortunate to have this like mission. Uh, you know, it's really it's a big privilege to be able to come to work thinking, well, we're really solving a very big issue at the moment. And almost everybody, everybody, I mean, everybody has mental health. And then everybody has also had has known somebody close to them, if not themselves, that's really struggled with it, too. So I think that feels it's very real. It's very immediate. And it's very personal to everybody. So that's, um, we're very lucky there. And it has made it a lot easier to get the the, the really brilliant people around, the right brilliant heads around the table um, because it's a very complex issue too. And it's a new technology. And I think where, where there's anything new, there's also, you know, there can be a lot of headwinds and a lot of complexity in understanding and resolving where what the role of this technology is going to be in in healthcare and doing that in a way that's thoughtful and sustained sustainable so yeah they're just some of my stream of consciousness thoughts <laughs> Oliver Allison it's been an absolute pleasure um thank you so much for coming on to the health tech podcast and telling us your story and the story of Wobot it's clear and obvious that Wobot is solving a huge problem in the space 
for mental health, digitizing CBT. I think it's, as I say, as a user of it previously, I can recommend it to people who are going through exactly that intense emotion that gives you distorted thinking that really lands with me that uh, from previous times in my life. So yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And for anybody that wants to uh, find out more about Wobot, you can visit wobothealth.com. Alison, thank you very much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.